0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter four. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. If there is a seat rack in front of you, there's so many people in the front row, sorry, no no Bibles for you. Um, And if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, uh, we have, uh, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. So, um, uh, we can take a look at that. We are in a series on learning contentment in a discontented world. If that doesn't sound to you like something that uh, you really want to strive for, I hope before the sermon's over that you'll see that actually that's a really, really good thing. And um, I just want to tell you a couple of things. Uh, One is that, uh, oh, in the seat rack, by the way, that's the page number if you're having trouble finding it. If you're new with us, hopefully you got a new here brochure when you came in. And on the inside of the New Here brochure is a sermon application guide. You can pick those up every week on the way in on the ki- kiosks. But there's uh, room for notes there, and uh, there's some reflection questions. And we use those reflection questions in our small groups, and most of our small groups. And the reason is, is because we want to bring the story of God to life. And that means not just in here, but to, to our everyday life. So it's not just about information. It's about growing to know God better and letting that impact our, our daily lives. All right, we're going to pray a prayer where we ask God to speak to us through His Spirit, and uh, at the same time, we're going to pray for uh, needs within um, our, our world and our life as a community, and um, I don't know why this thing's not working right. All right, we can pray for that too, yeah. Thank you. All right, uh, this prayer is based on Jeremiah chapter 33, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, You are the Creator of all things. You formed the earth and everything in it. You are Lord over all things, and yet You are mindful of us. You want us to know You. You've asked us to call to You, and You've told us that You will answer us. All wisdom is found in You. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Through your Holy Spirit, show us what we don't know that we need to know and reveal the things that we need to see. Father, thank you for the families that are dedicating children uh, in all of our services today and just for the, um, I just think of that verse that one shared about the joy of knowing that your kids are walking with the Lord, walking in the truth. And we want, we want that, and we want even more than, that. more than that. We want, because of that, we want our kids to be living on mission for you throughout their lives. And Father, as a church, help us to come alongside those parents uh, to help them do that. Father, we also, as a church, want to impact our community, and we thank you for the Thanksgiving bags that are going to feed people and give them a better Thanksgiving, people who uh, are going through difficult times. I think of when they go to pick up their bags, the smiling faces, and the words of love that will be spoken to them. I pray that they hear them, and I pray that through that, your name would be glorified and people would come closer to you and have a a beautiful or a more beautiful Thanksgiving day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, we're looking at today. the Apostle Paul is in prison. Uh, he is going to reference the fact that they, uh, the church in Philippi, he's in prison probably in Rome. He is going to reference the fact that the church in Philippi has sent him some gifts, meaning some financial help while he's in prison. In prison in that day, you didn't have three meals a day and that sort of thing. Uh, you, you better have people on the outside who are going to bring food in for you. And so, uh, the, the church has sent someone to help and to, to bring this, this to him, and so he reflects on that, beginning in verse 10, and it's part of his saying, thank you. But he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So, about a year ago, a journalist by the name of Moya Sarner wrote an article in the Guardian magazine online, or Guardian newspaper online, and the article is called, The Age of Envy, How to Be Happy When Everyone Else's Life Looks Perfect. So, she recounts, begins by recounting a couple episodes from her life. Uh, Both were times that she came across posts on social media. And they had a big impact on her in that she was filled with a lot of envy. One of those uh, posts, can we get that picture up here? I know I kind of skipped a few things there. Okay. So one of those posts was a tweet where a uh, colleague that she hardly even knew uh, had shared that he was going to be up for a journalism award. He was one of the final candidates for it. He hadn't won yet. It's an award that she hadn't even applied for, wasn't even that interested in getting. But she said she could hardly sleep that night because all she could think about were awards and how she hadn't won any awards and she wanted to win some awards. And, and it just kind of like ate her alive for a night. Another one goes back to when she was uh, in college and uh, she saw a post from someone in one of her courses, someone that she hardly even knew, just a bare acquaintance. And the person was showing a picture of being out on the town for the evening partying. And she said, I just, I didn't even party. I mean, it wasn't a big deal for me. But she said, I was over, so overcome with envy watching them have fun while I was sitting at home alone that it actually impacted my breathing. <laughs> it like, I felt it in, in my gut. So, In talking about this, she says one of the reasons these two instances stand out in her mind, when she thinks of being impacted like that, she thinks of these two instances. She says the the reason is is because it really tells a lot about what she was going through at that time in her life. Both came at times when the pictures exposed her vulnerabilities. They exposed um, that there were some struggles going on in her, her life. In college, she was feeling alone and later her vulnerabilities with regard to her professional life. So she writes this. She says, we live in an age of envy. Career envy, kitchen envy, children envy, food envy, upper arm envy, (laughs) holiday envy. You name it, there's an envy for it. Now, envy is nothing new, of course. It's just that social media bombards us with that many more opportunities. Uh, Researchers, some people call it what we get hit with in social media are Photoshopped lives. And that's how it's gonna be. I mean, it's just, that's the nature of social media. You're You're not gonna show the picture that didn't turn out very well. You're gonna show the one that turned out well. And so she says, we carry in our pockets an Envy amplification device, okay? So we're envious, but this just amplifies it And one of the researchers that she references in this article says, even being aware that you're watching Photoshop lives, even if you're aware and you talk to yourself and say, this is not all of reality. This is not what happened before the picture or after picture. I know when I post a picture what the reality is. Even if you tell yourself that, it doesn't really help that the envy still hits you. Now, envy is a form of discontent, and it's one of many forms of discontent. There are other powerful emotions that come out of discontent, and they include greed and selfish ambition, lust, even a spirit of complaining are some of the things that carry in discontent. And so we not only live in an age of envy, as she references, but we live in an age really of discontent. So many things that make us feel discontent, that add to that, that amplify our feelings of discontent. But the Bible calls us to live a life of contentment, of not being discontent. And so it does so in several, actually it does it all over the Bible, but there are some passages where it actually uses the word contentment. One is found in Hebrews chapter 13, where it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. And then it also says this in 1 Timothy 6 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then passage we just read: I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Now, I think if we're going to look at contentment, I think it's really important. I'm going to spend some time in this today before we even get to the first point of the sermon, and we're only have one point today. Um, but uh, before I get there, I really think it's important to talk about what contentment is not, because it's not like uh, if you, you know, read through um, you know, Wired magazine, Forbes magazine, or any kind of those you know, that are going to be on business and leadership and those kinds of things. Uh, it's not like you're going to come across articles that say, hey, you really ought to go after contentment. <laughs> Uh, Contentment doesn't sound like something that maybe we should go after. Contentment, though, is not about lacking ambition. We get that idea, but it's not about lacking ambition. It's not about lacking initiative. It's not about setting our sights really low or when setting goals, setting them really low so we can achieve them, or not having any goals at all in life. It's not about settling for less. Now, we may have that idea. Uh, You may have seen the commercials that are out there. AT&T has a whole series of commercials. And you can see all of them if you go to YouTube, of course. Uh, But they they are the, what, uh, there's this phrase that they use, just okay is not okay. So here's here's one of them. Hey. Hey, Hey, how you doing? Uh, Phil, are you guys good with brakes? We're okay. Just okay? We got a saying here. The brakes don't stop it, something will. (laughs) That's not a real saying. It is around here. I wrote it. Just okay is not okay. All right. That's not what contentment is about. <laughs> All right. There, is, um, there are things that are truly important in life, and in those things we ought to seek excellence in those things. Uh, there's also in the Bible uh, very obviously a holy discontent, a holy discontent that God wants us to have in our own hearts, a holy discontent over things that are wrong about our world that we could do something about, and the things that are even wrong about us that God wants to work on and bring change and transformation in our lives. So, to understand this, this, this balance between contentment and ambition or contentment and initiative, I think, can be really illustrated very well by a passage in 1 Corinthians 7. So, I'm going to ask you to go to the left in your Bible, if you've got a paper Bible, and go to 1 Corinthians. It's not too far from where you are right now. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is also a letter by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a series of questions as well as issues that he knows are alive and well, but not good things that are happening within the Corinthian church. One of the things throughout this whole chapter that he's dealing with in this chapter is this sense of discontent among a lot of believers. So there are some that believe that their marriage is keeping them from really being able to pursue God wholeheartedly because they have some wrong ideas about what it means to serve God wholeheartedly. So, there are people within marriage who are living as if they weren't married. They're still together, but they're living as if they weren't married, so that, as to not get in the way uh, of each other. There are people who are single uh, that are thinking, if I was just married, I could really then live all out for God. And then there are people who are married believers who are married to unbelievers And they are thinking, this person is holding me back, and maybe I should just leave this person because this person is an unbeliever. And so for all of that, the Apostle Paul brings a principle. So if you look at verse 17, here's what he says. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them to, just as God has called them, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now that sounds pretty... You know, like, this is it. There are no exceptions. But there's an asterisk on this. He's going to give it to us in just a moment. It's it's not like, hey, this is the rule, and you don't change anything. You just stay with where you are because God assigned that to you, and God gave that to you. So he applies the principle to circumcision, and that's a whole larger issue. But then he applies it to slaves and to slavery. Many in that church were slaves. And many of them wanted to get out of slavery. And this is what he writes. Look at verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? And by called, he's saying, at the moment that you came into a relationship with God, did you become a Christian? Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. All right, so there is an exception. It's not going to be the only exception. In other words, it doesn't mean lacking initiative, Um, Notice what he says next, verse 22. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Unless, (laughs) because he's just said it, unless you can get out of your situation. And and it's legitimate for you to get out of your situation, and you do it in a legitimate way. Okay, so he gave us the exception that gives us another principle to put with this one. But what he's saying is he knows there are people in that church who can't get out of their slavery. They um, want to buy themselves out, and you could do that in that day. You could buy yourself out of slavery, but there were some people that were not ever going to be able to, and there were people that we're not going to be able to for several years. And he's saying, look, this is where God has you, and you can live for God. You're, you're not ultimately, that person is not your master. God is your master. Jesus is your master. Live for Jesus right now. And likewise, if you're free, don't think that you have, like, you're free to do anything. No, you are, you belong to Christ, and He's, he's a great master. So, when the Bible talks about contentment, don't think that it means you can't change anything, take any initiative, that it means being a slacker, no goals, you know, none of that sort of thing. Here's another thing when we talk about contentment to keep in mind throughout this series. Even though we're going to see that contentment is linked to, linked to joy and it's, con, it's linked to deep soul satisfaction, it doesn't exclude grief contentment doesn't exclude sorrow. Contentment doesn't mean that we are above our circumstances. I think a lot of people think, as a Christian, I should be above my circumstances. No, the Bible does not call us to be above our circumstances. Again, to illustrate this, let me give you an example from Philippians, the book that we're in. So, get back to Philippians, but go to chapter 2. So, back to the right, chapter 2. So, the passage in chapter 4 is one of the most important passages, and it's kind of the theme for our whole series, because Paul says, I learned to be content. And it's not just about when I didn't have. I learned to be content when I did have. And I think we all know that you can have a lot and still feel a sense, a deep sense of discontent in your life. So, Paul is in prison. He finds contentment trying to make the point, I find contentment in situations like this. The outward circumstances of my life do not steal my joy. The outward circumstances of my life do not steal my sense of deep satisfaction. But earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 25, listen to what he says. But I think it's necessary, verse 25, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs, all right? This is the guy that brought the gift. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. What's he saying here? He's saying, I am content in prison, meaning I experience joy, I experience deep satisfaction in life, but at the same time, I have lots of sorrows in my life. And if Epaphroditus had died, I wouldn't lose my contentment, but I would have had another sorrow to deal with in my life. Paul is not above his circumstances. It's not like anything can happen and it's not going to bother him Contentment doesn't put us above our circumstance. Contentment is based, we're going to see this as we go through the series, on gaining a vision of our unseen but equally real circumstances in Christ. In other words, his only circumstance is not another friend who has died or someone who has added sorrow to his life and the fact that he's in prison. He knows there's more to life than that. He knows his circumstances are much bigger and broader than that. He knows that his circumstances are real in Christ, and that's what brings him joy and satisfaction. When I was in college, one of my roommates um, got sick, and he had a pretty high fever, and he was miserable, and he uh, brought with him from home uh, an idea that I have no idea if it's true or not, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't work. But he had a way of dealing with his fever, and that was to take every blanket possible in the house, go to bed, cover himself up, and sweat. which is just disgusting to me, just the idea of just getting the whole bed all, you know, sweaty and, and all of that. I'd rather have the fever, thank you. Um, but uh, he had been in the bedroom. I'm out in the living area working on homework or something, and, and all of a sudden, after about an hour of being back there, under these blankets, he had started sweating, and he was so excited that he he yelled. I heard, "All right, sweat!" Yeah. I mean, in other words, he had he had a fever, he felt terrible, but there was a sense of like yes and excitement because he believed something that wasn't going to happen. He believed <laughs> that his his fever was going to break now, if if I'm wrong, tell me, I'm still not going to do it. Um, but he believed that something better was coming, and that's a little bit of what contentment is about, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because it's not really what we're talking about today, just kind of setting things up to talk about contentment for the next, this week and the next three weeks. The main thing right now that I just wanted, as before we get into today's question, the main thing that I wanted to, to get to is that contentment is not opposed to a holy discontent or a good, pure ambition, taking initiative, or it doesn't mean that we're above our circumstances. So, here's where we're going to go in this series. We're going to spend two weeks, this week and next week, looking at why we should learn to be content, why we should learn to be content. And this is going to be the rest of this sermon as we look at one of the reasons why, and we'll look at about three more next week. It's going to be pretty heavily theological. Now, that might scare some of you, or that might like make your eyes roll back on your head and go, ugh, really theological. Give me something practical, Henry. It is going to be practical, but it's going to be really theological. I talked about this a few weeks ago. I wanted to return to it really quick because I believe even the kids that are among us can be really theological and even be excited about theology. I think it's a mindset. So when I was in about fourth or fifth grade, I uh, discovered, uh, I was in a single parent home, my mom never, all of a sudden, my friends got interested in the NFL and so did I. And so I started following my, my, the person who became my hero was just the person who I read a book about and it was Johnny Unitas at the time. And so I could, in about fourth or fifth grade, I could tell you everything about Johnny Unitas, I mean statistics left and right. I could tell you about, I could tell you about the championship game that took place when I was about three months old, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and the championship game in 1964 and the Super Bowl that I didn't even know was happening in I think 1967 or 68. I could tell you all about that, and uh, I I had that information down. Why? Because it was important to me. I talked about the fact, I talked about, a few weeks ago, I talked about the fact that in football, there is nothing intrinsically interesting about football. I love football, okay? I cannot wait for the game this afternoon. I've got it taping, and so I'm going to watch it from the beginning. I don't want to know what the score is, if somebody even, I don't even like people joking about what the score might be. (laughs) Just start reading into it. I like, I want to watch the whole thing, and in about... Well, I'll I'll skip through the commercials, but or some of the commercials. But by the time I'm done, you know, with about two and a half hours of watching, I will have seen—can't remember for sure—about twelve minutes of action. That's it. Twelve minutes of where the ball is actually in play. There's nothing intrinsically interesting about it, but I have cultivated an interest in football. And I could do it from, I could, details and everything from a very young age. We all have interests, and we can cultivate those interests. And it doesn't matter what age we are. I mean, I mean you can be very young and cultivate an interest. God is interesting. That's what theology is, the study of God, Theo, God. It's a study of God. God is interesting. It's, when we learn about God, we learn about our purpose. We learn about who we are. We learn about um, what our life is supposed to be about, can be about. It speaks to our hearts. It takes, he speaks to our cares, our concerns. Theology is actually pretty interesting if we cultivate that. I have a friend who decided, it was about three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, he decided to fast from listening to sports radio for a year. And uh, I don't think he had any idea how much he listened to sports radio. But he decided to take the time that he listens to sports radio and listen instead to the Bible being read. From beginning to end. And by the time he was done, by the time he was done, he had listened in that year to a book this size being read cover to cover five times. Okay, I'm not saying listening to sports radio is bad or anything like that, but what was he cultivating (laughs) in his life? I mean, endless discussions <laughs> and opinions and a few stats here and there, a few facts about what was happening. What was he cultivating? You love what you cultivate and you cultivate what you love. Theology is interesting. <laughs> theology is interesting. It's a mindset. So we're going to spend two weeks on theology. We're going to spend one, two weeks then on learning to learn to be content. And what can we do in our lives to learn to be content? Because it's, it's something that is a learned response to our life. The Apostle Paul says, I have learned this. I have learned this. And it will get a lot more how-to and practical at that point. So why do we need to learn to be content? One point sermon today. All right. We're not counting the other stuff I've been saying as a point. So learning contentment isn't easy. Uh, it's very helpful to remember the why kind of come back. That's why these we're going to look at about four whys. We need to come back to that over and over again uh, of the why. But here's, here's the first why. We are made in the image and for the glory of God, and God is content. We're made to reflect Him, and one of the characteristics of God is that He is content. It's like we want to be like our Father. We want to be like our Lord. We want to be like, like Jesus. That's why. Eric Raymond, uh, by the way, that was one of the slides I skipped earlier. Eric Raymond is a pastor. who wrote a book called Chasing Contentment. It's going to be really helpful. If you want to go deeper in this series, you can go to that book. Um, and it's going to be, it's, it's a helpful guide. It's, we're kind of following his progression Uh, through this subject. So, uh, if you want to go deeper, feel free to do that. So, this is what Eric Raymond says in his book. He says, any attempt to understand contentment must begin with God. The article on envy did not. Uh, The motivational speakers that you love listening to do not. Even a lot of Christian motivational speakers do not begin with God. They hardly even get to God, all right? Hold that thought. We'll get there in a minute. Any attempt to understand contentment must begin with God as the only uncreated being. He's the only one who is not dependent on someone or something else for anything. He is entirely self-sufficient. And as such, He alone is eligible to be the source of any true and lasting contentment. It's only in God that we're going to find true and lasting contentment. Now, that's a packed statement. It's in your outlines. You can read it again later. People all around us are pursuing contentment. That article, like I said, is pursuing contentment. But the problem with most attempts pursuing contentment, they can only take you so far. It's not that they don't have great ideas. That article had some great ideas. But they can only take you so far because ultimately, the way of dealing with contentment is to go deeper into ourselves. That's what it usually is. In fact, you can put up the next slide. I kind of slid into that one. Uh, so, people all around us are pursuing contentment. The answers offered in that article and in other sources ultimately go into ourselves because that's all they have. Some people have more than that, and somehow they don't tap into it. A lot of the Christian writers on contentment, motivation, all that kind of thing. Not the Apostle Paul. For Paul, the source of his contentment is God. Look back at verse chapter 4. So, go back to chapter 4. And verse 13, he says, after saying, I have learned to be content, I can do all this. I can be content through Him who gives me strength. So, he's talking about God there, through Him who gives me strength. Now, the word for contentment that the Apostle Paul uses in this passage and the other writers that we read a moment ago, it's a word from popular culture of the day. And it was a word that was very much influenced by the most popular philosophy of the day, and the most popular philosophy of that day was Stoic philosophy. Stoics wanted contentment more than anything else. They wanted to be able to be happy and satisfied every day, no matter what. No matter what. They they had this goal of one of the translations of one of their words, of one of the words in Stoic philosophy, is they wanted to be imperturbable. All right, they didn't want to be perturbed, bothered, upset by anything. They wanted to be able to to stay even, stay satisfied. Okay, the way they did that, they said, the only way to do that is by learning self-sufficiency. You can't be dependent on other people or circumstances and stay that narrow road. All right, so you've got to overcome that. You've got to want to be self-sufficient. In fact, they said, you've got to love self-sufficiency. I mean, you've got to love it. You've got to love it more than success. You've got to love it more than food. You've got to love it more than your family. How did uh, Marcus Aurelius, one of the famous Stoics, also one of the emperors um, of the Roman Empire later in the New Testament, but... He has a whole discussion about how do you deal with the loss of a child as a stoic. Well, hopefully you went into it not putting too much value on that child in the first place because you love self-sufficiency more than your family. And then you just have to talk yourself through it. You just have to say, well, children die every day. A child died. That's what you need to tell yourself. A child died. And that's how you can deal with it. Do you even want that? You want to be like above your circumstances because you actually don't love or care deeply. You care more for your own self sufficiency and your own happiness than you care about anything else. From a biblical perspective, Paul's perspective in Philippians, only God is self sufficient. Only God can be the source of our sense of contentment. We don't find contentment by becoming self sufficient, it's not even possible. You know, write all about it. The Stoics tried. It's not possible to be so self-sufficient. You may like listening to your favorite motivational speaker, but understand and listen for this. The best they can do most of the time is tell you to go deep within yourself, and that's not going to be enough. They're going to tell you all kinds of things about you can be content because you are good and you are enough and you are this. You are not if you're a Christian and you're saying that, that's an affront on the gospel. It says, actually, you need God. You are not enough. You fall short of His glory. And you need forgiveness. And you need His love. And His love is made available through the death of His Son. You need that. You are not enough. So they can only go so far. Listen for it. Listen how far they get. It's not that you, again, I'm not saying don't listen to them. Just recognize they can't take you far enough. But since we're made in God's image, doesn't it mean that we, too, should be self-sufficient, you might say? God is self-sufficient. We're made in His image. And the answer is no. The reality is that to think that means we don't understand what it means to be made in God's image, and we don't understand the nature of God's self-sufficiency. So, I want to talk about these two things really quickly. So, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, to be made in God's image means that we've been made to reflect God. But there are things about God that we can reflect, and there are other things that we can't reflect. I mean, that's a given because made in God's image doesn't mean we were made to be gods. (laughs) We're humans. And so, on the one hand, there are things that we can reflect about God. The Bible tells us we can reflect His love. We can be loving. Reflect His love by being loving. But God is also all-knowing. We're not going to reflect that. All right, so there's, 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 there's things about God's character that we can do and things that we can't be. Alright, so being made in God's image. The nature of God's self-sufficient, we think of self-sufficient God as being this alone and okay with it for all of eternity type of God, and that's not the picture that the Bible gives. If you've taken the story of God experience, you might remember this from week one. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis where he talks about the Trinity, talks about that God is not alone for all of eternity, but God is one but three persons. And so, he says this, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, which you would have to be to be alone for all of eternity and be okay with that. In Christianity, God is not an important, an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. God is one, but there are three persons in God in fellowship with each other for all of eternity. The idea of a dance is this give-and-take type picture that he gives there, which actually describes a big, gigantic aspect of what it means to glorify God. See, within God Himself are the three persons glorifying one another. What does that mean to glorify God, glorifying within Himself? It means delighting. We glorify God when we delight in Him. We're like, ah, like we delight in our favorite team or a musical piece that we love or Watching our children do something. When we delight in God. We're glorifying God. And God in Himself is this dance and delight of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And He invites humanity into that dance. That's what He created us for. That's Genesis 1 and 2. He invites us into the dance. Not to be gods, but to have that give and take, beautiful relationship and fellowship with each other. Not self sufficient but completely dependent on God. That's what we were created for. But that's, that's what we were made for. But instead of seeking our contentment in God and our delight in God, what we did was we began to look at the things that God had made and seek our delight in those things as if they were the final thing. Turn away from God and make the ultimate thing the things that God created. Make that the end goal. Make that the thing that makes me ultimately happy. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, this is what he says. He says, people, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. That's what we did and that's what we continue to do. Genesis 3 explains what happened. And what happened in Genesis 3 happens every single day in our lives. What he's talking about here, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about how we make a habit of elevating things and demoting God. We elevate things. Things were made for our enjoyment. Good things. But we have a a tendency to elevate those things and demote God. And the result... It's devastating to our lives and devastating to our relationships. The results are envy, greed, selfish ambition, lusts, a spirit of complaining. They eat us alive. They devastate us. We're going to look at three more reasons, at least three more reasons next week why it's, important to, why it's important to learn to be content. But this is where it starts. It's important because God is content, and we are made in His image, and we're made to reflect that same Contentment. And it's only in God that we will find contentment, that joy, that satisfaction that can go through whatever circumstances we're in. God is all about renewing His image in us. We celebrate it in communion in just a few moments. We remember that, that the sun came. God the Son came. To die on the cross for our sins in our place, in order that we can be reconciled to God, in order that we can be redeemed. His body was broken for us, and his body and his blood was shed for us, because God wants to restore his image in us. May we be those people who are pursuing God because he has pursued us, responding to him and to his grace and growing in contentment reflecting his joy because we are dependent on him. Let's pray together.